Hi, friends. I'm Tim Whitaker, and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. It's no secret that people are leaving American evangelicalism in record numbers. And for many, the reasons seem rather obvious. The unwavering support for Trump, unaccountable church leaders, and theological positions that seem to be more interested in ostracizing people instead of a radical inclusivity that seeks the well-being of all its neighbors. But many evangelical leaders have found another culprit, deconstruction. Deconstruction is the vehicle that takes people away from historic Christianity. Okay, these are the wolves. I'm talking about the doctrines of demons that are underneath these things. And he is leading people to the slaughter. And the things that they're saying are not biblical. You rightly draw attention to a movement that is bent upon destroying Christianity. I'm joined by Dr. Pete Enns, professor of biblical studies at Eastern University, to respond to the claims that deconstruction is destroying Christianity, leading people to slaughter, and is incompatible with the faith historically. Hello, friends. Welcome. Oh, this will be a fun one. So good to have you here. We have almost 50 people watching already. So great to be with all of you. I know we have not done a live in a really a month or two now with the holidays and some other content I've been working on, but it's so good to have you here. I'm very excited for this live I'm working with Dr. Pete Enns, uh, who's become really a friend over the past year or so. Responding to a video I found of Elisa Childers, Tim Barnett, and Sean McDowell talking about deconstruction. If you don't know who those folks are, that is okay. We're going to break all of this down. So buckle up, get your bingo cards out. You know, how many times are we going to hear the term biblical worldview? I can't tell you, but get ready to to, to uh, chat that. I'm, I'm assuming probably a lot is my best guess. So first things first, let's go ahead and get the man, the myth, the legend in this episode. There he is. Hello, Pete. How are you? Hey, Tim. Doing great. Thanks for uh, having me uh, on this a little event here. Sounds great. Yeah, that's going to be a good time. Uh, Evan has already <laughs> said, I hope Pete adds to the saying Sky Daddy in an Elisa Childers response video saga. So I'm, I'm sure this is going to happen at some point. So listen, it's good to have you. I'm excited to, to break down some of the clips that we pulled from this interview with Sean McDowell, Tim Barnett, and Elisa Childers. Friends, if you don't know, if you're new to the channel, just a few quick caveats, things that we always say. The goal of all of our videos is not is never to dehumanize people that we disagree with. Sean, Tim, Elisa are all made in the image of God. They're deserving of dignity and respect. The idea is not to critique them as humans, but yes, it is to respond to some of their ideas. So we really want to make sure that we're clear about that. The other thing is, yes, we're gonna have some fun. We're gonna we're gonna you know make 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 some of the jokes that a lot of us deconstructionists make sometimes, etc. But the goal is to take the claim seriously. You know, when Sean, Tim, and Elisa are speaking about deconstruction in terms like biblical worldview, it's important that we take those claims seriously and then answer them in a serious way. So it's important to me that that you out there know that. I've spoken to Tim. I've spoken to Sean. I've spoken to Elisa all privately. I've interviewed Sean on our podcast. So 
they know who we are. They know the work that we do. And the goal is to respond charitably, but of course, to respond. Pete, anything else you want to add regarding maybe some of your background? You're an author. You're a biblical scholar. So you want to give the audience a crash course on who you are? Yeah, I mean, I teach at a college professor. I was a seminary professor for about 14 years before that. And I'm a biblical scholar. I try to write some books and have a podcast. And and I'm I'm you know, I'm very interested in, you know, what is Christianity and what does it look like today? And and to listen to people who have had very good reasons for struggling with this ancient faith. You know, and I think engaging those who might not see the value in that, what people call deconstruction, there's a lot of other words for it too. So yeah, and just one thing I wanted to add to, Tim, that um I think with not dehumanizing people, obviously that's that's very important, but also to remember that people all have a story. You know, uh, Tim, Sean, and Elisa have stories. They have lives. And, and, you know, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if all of our talking about this topic weren't connected to our own experiences as well. And I think that should give us some measure of respect for the other, but also a recognition that this isn't just about dealing with what's objective reality. It's our own experiences that have gone into uh, how we even think about those big questions. And I think you can't divorce the humanity from the topics that we're talking about. I totally agree. I 100% agree. So let's start here. I, I do want to show the audience just a little, little bit of background on, on the people that we are going to be responding to. If you don't know who Elisa, Tim, and Sean are, here is your chance. So Elisa, she writes in her bio that she was a lifelong churchgoer, a follower of Jesus, and former CCM recording artist with the Dove Award-winning group Zoe Girl, which full transparency I've listened to as a child many times, and that she experienced a, a period of profound doubt about her faith in her mid-30s. Uh, she, she writes, I felt as though I had been tossed in a stormy ocean of uncertainty with no life jacket or lifeboat in sight. I didn't know where to find answers to my questions or if answers existed at all. Did I have to accept it all in some kind of blind faith? I began to investigate my faith intellectually. I took seminary classes and read everything I can get my hands on. This began my journey from unreasoned doubt into a vibrant, rational, and informed faith. So, so Elisa writes in that world. I don't think she would claim to be someone who's an academic, but she writes books talking about what she would call as the protecting the historic Christian faith and does a lot of work. Really, I would say going after terms like progressive Christianity um, and deconstruction. In fact, this interview was around the book that her and this person here, Tim Barnett, wrote together about deconstruction. So Tim Barnett, who will also be in this video, is an apologist and speaker with Stand to Reason. They're a pretty mainstream evangelical apologetics outlet, an apologetics ministry dedicated to training Christians to think more clearly about their faith. Tim, tra Tim travels across the U.S. and Canada, speaking to thousands of people each year. He's also a frequent guest on podcasts and YouTube channels. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Physics from York University, a Bachelor of Education from Ontario Tech University, and a Master of Arts in Philosophy from Southern Evangelical Seminary. And, and between 2014 and 2022, Tim served on the pastoral staff at Cedarview Community Church. And finally, the host of this video we're responding to is Sean McDowell, Dr. Sean McDowell. He's, a, according to his bio, a gifted communicator with a passion for equipping the church, and in particular, young people, to make the case for the Christian faith. He's an associate professor in the Christian Apologetics Program at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. He earned a PhD in Apologetics and Worldview Studies from the Southern Baptist Seminary in 2014. So that's who we're dealing with here, kind of all across the spectrum regarding education. And all three of these folks are very, very public figures in the evangelical world. 
They are on the evangelical circuit talking about how to defend the true and historic Christian faith, which maybe feed just to kind of give the audience uh, an example of how often in this interview, terms like historic Christian worldview, all that kind of stuff was talked about. I, I made a little montage just for fun, just to kind of demonstrate exactly it is what we're talking about. So here's them talking, just kind of chopped up. Here we go. Transition away from historic Christianity. We got to do a better job with just biblical literacy and theology. Biblical. And the things that they're saying are not biblical. Takes you away from the historic faith. A biblical view of sexuality. Takes people away from historic Christianity. That's not a biblical approach. A transition away from historic Christianity. The root of this really is biblical authority. There's no biblical authority. Biblical authority is really at the heart of this. Biblical faith, that's not a biblical process. So I, I want to start here with you because this is a very common phrase I hear often, even outside of this interview, biblical worldview. Can you maybe from your vantage point as a biblical scholar, maybe offer your perspective on such a phrase, how you've heard it used before and how you would even think about the phrase biblical worldview through your lens? Well, I mean, I, I get what they're coming at, you know, using a phrase like that. They want to be faithful to the Christian tradition, and the Christian tradition is not entirely codified in a Bible, but that's a big part of it. That's sort of a, a foundation that things have worked off of. The I think the problem that I have with it is that it it already brings us towards what we might call a proof-texting mentality regarding the Bible, and you know, here's the verse, it shows that if you do what this verse says and you're being biblical. And I, I would take some issue with that because the history of both Judaism and Christianity have never, ever thought of theology, of the life of faith in terms of Bible verses. It's always been much more theological, much more synthetic, and a much more recognition of how with changing times, things have to be articulated differently, or people are going to have questions they didn't have 500 years earlier. That's really the, the this wonderful tradition of Christianity has been a series of in negotiating what it means to tie to the Bible while also recognizing that the Bible was not written with us in mind, which I know it might be a controversial point for some people to hear, but yeah. I, I think it's very true to recognize that, that we are dealing with issues today that the biblical writers could never have imagined. And what do we do? And the answer to that question isn't necessarily, in fact, it's typically not find the Bible verse. It's engage the theological tradition of the church. And I think that's what's lost in the language of biblical worldview. Hmm. Plus, the Bible is pretty diverse when you get down to it. I mean, what's what's the biblical worldview on money? Well, you go to town on that one, read Proverbs, and you know, different Proverbs that deal with that, and there are different viewpoints, and and that's part of what we have in this this really wonderful anthology of texts that we call the Bible. That's it's very diverse in that respect, and and to pin it down to Bible verses telling us what to think and how to navigate difficult philosophical, cultural, emotional, psychological issues, it's elevating the Bible to a point that I think it was never intended to have. Hmm. Fair. So that, that is helpful. And we're going to unpack more of that because there's a lot of clips pertaining to that kind of language about how the deconstructionist uh, isn't holding on to, quote unquote, a biblical worldview. 
Let's start here with my first clip. And there's actually two. They're kind of sandwiched together. The first one mm -hmm. is them defining deconstruction, which I do find ironic, and I'll get to that in a minute. And then I want to talk, I want to show the next clip, which is Elisa talking about how for her deconstruction is the biggest threat in her mind, or one of the biggest ones to Christianity. So here we go. You spend a lot of time defining deconstruction. And as a philosopher and apologist, huge value in that. The way you define it here is a transition away from historic Christianity and towards something else. So I, I just want to point out already, like the whole mm -hmm. framing of even this point, historic Christianity, in my opinion, and I want to clarify to the audience, I am not the academic in this conversation, but it seems to die the death of a thousand qualifications because depending on who you're asking in what part of the Christian tradition at what time in history and where they're coming from, you're going to get some different answers on what quote-unquote historic Christianity actually is. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I would like to know, I'm curious as to if they could flesh out more what they mean by historic Christianity. I think that would be valuable. I don't want to presume that they mean all these things that they might not even mean. I do think that it probably comes down to biblical authority and the role that the Bible plays in how we navigate difficult theological subjects. And that's interesting and all, but again, you know, the devil's in the details, if I can use that expression. You know, when you get down to it, when you, when you study scripture, as so many people have, the question of biblical authority starts becoming an actual theological topic. Like, what do we mean by that? Right. Is, is it, is it, theolog is it um, authority, again, on the verse level, uh, on the paragraph, paragraph level, on the chapter level, on the book level, or... Is it even much bigger and broader than that? Is it, see, Judaism is great at this. Christians have not been this good, but, but Judaism is great. Understanding that if you want to navigate life, ask a learned Jew, like, what do I do about specific topic X? They won't say, let's run to the Bible and find the verse. They'll say, let's, let's engage our tradition that has such wisdom of thought that's been going on now for 2,500 years for Judaism at least. This is their source of theological knowledge. It's not just that the text is non-negotiable. It's very important, but they'll also argue with the text mm. because the text is limited because of its own contextual constraints, let's say. Yeah. And I think part of the, the mentality, again, of a biblical worldview, to get back to that topic, is that it simply doesn't recognize the complexity of the human drama. Mm. And that and that is why people, if I if I can put it this way, that is why people are saying, I don't know if I can continue with this faith anymore because I have these simple rules to follow. And the fact is that my life is very complicated, and it's complicated in a way that Bible verses won't fix it. Right, right. That's helpful. No, I I tend I tend to agree with you on that completely. So here's uh, let's get into the next section of this of this two parter of Elisa talking about how deconstruction is the vehicle, and we'll get into deconstruction for a bit and, and, and break that down. I think deconstruction is the one of the greatest challenges to the Christian faith right now, and the reason for mm. that is because some people might think, oh, it's atheism, or it's progressive Christianity, or it's this or that, and those are certainly um, intellectual challenges to Christianity, but they're different destinations, whereas deconstruction <clears throat> is the vehicle that takes people away from historic Christianity and into, uh, so it could be, they could land anywhere in the new age or, or atheism or as agnosticism. And so I think that because it's really a methodology 
that takes you away from the historic faith. I think it's a really timely issue. I think they so. Can- I, I, I want to point out two things here. Number one, it does strike me mm-hmm. that that for and this has been a critique of mine for a long time with people in these spaces that a lot of them have no problem hanging out with like Christian nationalist adjacent folks. Like for example, Elisa is doing an event with Frank Turek, um, which is being promoted right now on her Instagram. And Frank Turek is someone who attends Turning Point USA events. He speaks from the stage there. And as I've documented, Turning Point USA has no problem dealing in like blatantly and openly racist talking points like the Great Replacement Theory. So for her and for this crowd, that's not really the biggest threat. The biggest threat to, and Sean does say the word Christianity later on in the clips, the biggest threat to Christianity is, is quote unquote deconstruction, presumably because it leads people away from the historic faith or historic Christianity, and also because it can lead people into places that are not Christian at all. One last point on this, I'll hand it over to you. I have talked to Elisa before, and she has told me things like, well, what, you know, the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus and the belief of the belief of forgiveness of sins. But the reason why I don't actually believe her when she says that is because then what she'll do is she'll say, well, if you're queer affirming or if you have this other view that's more progressive, that's not a true gospel. I mean, I have clips of her saying this. So people will tend to get down to that very base level of, well, the resurrection. And then when I say, well, I agree with that, but also I have these other views, suddenly it shifts to, well, that's not historic Christianity. So I'm just kind of curious for you, like what your thoughts are on a clip like this when it comes to the, these yeah. claims. I mean, that's why on that last point, I think it's very important because historic Christianity is tied to biblical authority. But again, I want to stress it's a biblical authority of a particular type. It's, I would call it very simplistic Protestantism. The Protestant mm. uh, tradition is actually very sophisticated. I disagree with a lot of, a lot of it. But the Protestant tradition is very sophisticated when it comes to the nature of Scripture. Mm. And you've got, you know, dyed-in-the-wool Calvinists like B.B. Warfield and Archibald Alexander Hodge from the 19th century who are defending Scripture, but also absolutely recognize the problems in Scripture. They go so far as to say there are even errors here because we have to let people talk in their human way, right? So I'm I'm not trashing Protestantism when I say that, but when it gets filled down to the let's say, to, to, to non-academic settings. And I don't mean that to sound elitist. I'm just trying to describe something. When you bring that down to a lower level, it becomes a lot more simplistic and it can get you into some trouble. That's why yeah. I'm saying biblical authority is, is itself a topic of vigorous theological discussion. Like, what does that actually mean? How does it work? And what responsibility do we have to even engage scripture, even again, taking a page out of Judaism to even interrogate scripture at times, because it may not actually sit well with who we are and and the issues we have to deal with. Now, of course, the response to that will be, and I, I get this completely, where you're just picking and choosing. No, I'm discerning is really what it comes down to. That That's the theological task is to discern. And this is what the church has always done since the very beginning. Paul does it. You know, it's just this. This is not that unusual. And um, can I a couple other things as we're th- as I'm thinking about this, Tim? If you don't mind, fire um, away. I think I see, I agree with them on one one very important point. This is a this is a point of commonality. I hear people. I see people on social media using deconstruction in ways that I think are almost self-aggrandizing. Hmm. And it becomes sort of like 
I'm deconstructing, man. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, and I don't believe any stuff anymore. Isn't it great? And I'm thinking, you know, that's not what deconstruction is. We have to do better than that. Deconstruction is actually not doing any of that stuff. It's, and they even allude to this at one point in one of their videos. It's painful. Mm -hmm. It's, it's frightening. Mm -hmm. It's something that happens to you. You're minding your own business. And all of a sudden you have a life experience or you read something or you meet people and this thing, whatever it is, you've always believed is absolutely central. Let's say only people who confess Jesus with their lips avoid hell. Hmm. And then you start meeting people who, which is, this has happened to me too, who challenge that point of view, not by arguing, but by their very existence. Right. And then you sit there as I have and said, oh, crap. <laughs> I've got this thing inside of me. I don't want to face it. I don't want to go there. I'm really happy where I am. But after a time, it just doesn't let you anymore. And you have to face it and not fight against it, but let that voice speak. That is very important. And to me, that is de not just to me, that is what deconstruction is. When people are saying, yeah, I don't believe that stuff anymore. I think this is garbage. They're actually reconstructing at that point. They're reconstructing mm -hmm. in certain ways, but they're not deconstructing. Deconstructing happens to us. It can be frightening. It can be unsettling. It can be the, the loneliest place in the world. Yeah, And that's why I take issue with some of this rhetoric about deconstruction being you know, the most threatening thing to the historic Christian faith. I just want to say read some Psalms for people who are deconstructing. Read mm -hmm. Psalm 73. I know how this used to go. I know what the rules are, but you know what? I don't see it anymore. I see the world around me that's nothing at all like what I was taught, you know, in Hebrew school or whatever. You know, right. you have Job who's doing great, you know, and all of a sudden everything's taken away and he's questioning his own existence. He's questioning God's goodness and judgment. You know, the, the, this is part of the tradition itself. This is part of the genius of both the Jewish and Christian traditions that we have what I would call deconstruction built into this system. Hmm. But it's not the way a, a lot of people use it. And I think what, what Elisa and Sean and what Tim are doing is they have their sights on, uh, I think, people who probably should be critiqued. Hmm. In my opinion, not maybe we wouldn't agree with all the people, but some of them are like a, a little bit, uh, you know, unguarded. In my opinion, sure. but that doesn't take away from the reality of we have to process our faith. We sometimes have to walk away from things and maybe come back in a different way. Well, you're not guaranteed. How are you going to come back? No, you're not guaranteed. How are you going to come back? That's part of life as well. Hmm. But the answer to that is not just doubling down on biblical authority or so-called historic Christianity and saying, if you don't follow that, you're actually, you're giving voice to the doctrine of demons as we've also seen in these videos. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. Friends, it's no secret that Christian nationalism is on the rise and threatens the rights of all of our neighbors. You also know I'm a big believer in shared values over shared beliefs, and you know that we are committed to working together with all kinds of folks to protect democracy in 2023. That's why I'm proud to let you know about the Summit for Religious Freedom hosted by Americans United taking place in Washington, D.C. April 14th through the 16th. I'm going to be there, and I'm so excited because keynote speakers include 
Anthea Butler, author of White Evangelical Racism, who we've had on the show before, and Representative Jamie Raskin, a vocal opponent of authoritarianism and Christian nationalism. The Summit for Religious Freedom is a big tent full of all kinds of people from different walks of life and holding different beliefs, uniting under the shared value of protecting the rights of all of our neighbors. So grab a ticket. Let's hang out and learn all about the ways we can resist Christian nationalism and protect freedom for all. Go to the srf.org for more information. And if you can't make it in person, that's okay. You can always grab a digital ticket and join us from virtually anywhere. Get it? That's thesrf.org, hosted by Americans United for Separation of Church and State, April 14th through the 16th. I'll see you there. All right, let's keep going then. Here's another one, deconstruction versus being biblical. Here's how they kind of tease that out. So what I started to ask is, when there are people who are saying, no, I I believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God. I want my beliefs to line up with what is true. I just want to get rid of maybe some things that were added culturally that aren't really biblical. Tim and I both would say along with you, yes, you should get rid of beliefs that are harmful, toxic, and untrue 100% and line up what you believe with what is true. I want want to pause there because this idea, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I used to see it that way uh, regarding like, I just want to get rid of my cultural notions and just get back to the Bible. But I'm realizing more and more, like, it's like, it's like a, a fish saying, I don't want to be in water anymore. Like, like we are in a cultural mm-hmm. moment. We are, and we are drawing from different cultural frameworks that at one point developed over time. And I think that, that, that this dichotomy between get rid of the cultural baggage, just go back to scripture. It's impossible because even the scripture that we have comes out of a cultural moment, right? I mean, I mean Martin Luther, mm-hmm. the Protestant Reformation, they got rid of the Apocrypha, uh, for example, you know, translations, et cetera. I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure if you if you have any thoughts on that, but to me, it stood out. I was like, mm-hmm. wait a second, that sounds nice, but can we actually do that? Well, there's no culturalist Bible. There's no culturalist Christian tradition. And that's part of the problem. This the, the idea of historic Christianity and biblical authority. It's like this objective thing that's just sort of sitting there, and it's really not. And the great irony is that I mean, uh, Jared Bias, many of you know, who's yes. you know, my co-host in the Bible for Normal People. He did a series a while back, the making of the modern mindset, which so is good. you know the past few hundred years of philosophy. And and what he says is something that frankly everybody says is that. Modern evangelicalism and fundamentalism is a thoroughly modernist movement with its desire for objective reality. And now we know, Lisa used the term, the truth, Mm -hmm. right, which is in the Bible because it's the authority. That is is not um, medieval Christianity. That's not ancient Christianity. That's not ancient Judaism. That's not Paul. That's not Jesus. That's a very different kind of thing. And to acknowledge that, I think, is very important. But it's hard for us, isn't it? I mean, it's hard for me to what part of me is cultural, what part of me isn't, you know, but, but this, this, this rhetoric is very much a part of um, thinking in terms of life as a series of certitudes that you can apprehend through logic or reason. And now you have the truth. Yeah. It's the problem with that is that somebody else is going to come along with a much better argument and you're not going to want to hear it. And hence, we have the apologetics industry that doubles down and fights back on those sorts of things. Yeah. And it, it doesn't, it actually ironically doesn't lead to truth, it leads away from it. Yeah. Uh, Hopeful Heretic says the problem is that what is true usually means the specific interpretation that I adhere to. I tend to agree with you, especially in the realm of theology and, and, and religion, because 
you know, the example I use, maybe it's a, a, an unsophisticated one, but I think it works, is that I tell people all the time, there's a reason why there is no flat earth studies department in academia, because we can go up to space and we can use science and math to, to prove, objectively speaking, that the earth is indeed round. But there's a reason why we have thousands of theology departments, because it's a different kind of way of thinking about the world with different categories. And I find that mm -hmm. people like Elisa and Sean and Tim and others tend to kind of map on this like more scientific, to your point, maybe modernist thinking of like, no, there is a truth. It is found here. And then we kind of just bypass the reality that we're coming into a cultural moment or that we're coming out of our own worldview. And we just say, no, no, we're just giving you the truth while as our opponents are giving you maybe a postmodern view of truth. And then it kind of falls apart from there. Right. And I think part of that, Tim, is, I mean, to dip back into history just a little bit, um, I mean, John Calvin was very big on this. There's one meaning to scripture. It's the objective meaning, and we have to find it. And you know it by knowing Greek and Hebrew and knowing some theology and and just applying your logic. And Calvin, you know, people have problems with Calvin. Calvin was a pretty bright guy. He, he was not an idiot, but he was also a, a person of his cultural context. This was all happening as as the scientific scientific revolution was beginning to happen with Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler and the, the cosmos is different than what used to be. And the, the object in science is that, listen, if you know the rules, you can arrive at the answer why the planets are doing what they're doing. Mm. And I'm saying you absolutely can. The question is, can you apply that now to theological study? Well, yes, because we have the objective standard, which is the Bible. Is it though? I mean, is it really, when you get down to it, is this really an objective standard or is it really an anthology of diverse and I think beautiful literature that's worthy of our, our true and deep adult attention, not mm. cherry picking Bible verses? Th this is what it is, but it's that can't be captured, I think, in that, um, that scientific mindset, let's say. Yeah, fair. And I love science, by the way. I've written books about science, but I don't think science has all the answers. You know, I think there you are realities that book? transcend that thing too, and a few others. But um, it's a great book. Thank you for that. Uh, checks in the mail, Tim. I appreciate it. But, you know, so it's I'm not against science, and people people know that. But I, I'm not a scientific materialist either. You know, mm -hmm. I think there's truth that extends beyond science. Of course, I mean Tim and Sean and Lisa would agree with that. I'm sure they'd agree with that. But I think they have unwittingly tapped into a modernist mindset. And claiming that is adequate for mm. deep theological insights. Yeah. And that is, the, to me, that is, that is ironic. Th that is very much being a part of the world and not being a part of the Christian tradition. Mm. But if you're doing that, why are we using a word that is really connected to postmodernism to describe that process? And honestly, in this context, in church history, a fairly new word. Why are we saying, okay, yeah, we'll just use the word deconstruction to describe what really is a healthy and biblical process? We're Christians and we're trying to, we want to make disciples. We want people to have a stronger Christian faith. And we think that's doing what the Bereans did searching the scriptures to see if these things are. And so that's our... I, I want to pause here on, on this moment for a second because, I, I, again, I think what is very interesting to me is that a lot of us did take that claim seriously. Like, we did say, hey, I do want to search the scriptures. And, and honestly, Pete, thanks to folks like you and many others, 
like, I mean, even on, on, on a different level, like Tim Mackey from the Bible project was kind of my gateway into like, wait, there's a divine counsel being talked about in scripture. There's the, you know, there, there's things are happening in the Bible that are much more complicated and different than what I was taught about it. And as I started reading the scriptures, I'm like, you know, there's a lot more in here and a lot of, a lot of different things in here that make, that make this much more complicated. And then when we arrive at different conclusions, then we get told by folks like Elisa and Sean and Tim that, oh, well, we're no longer holding to a biblical worldview, even though we're reading the Bible and just being like, I don't know, there seems to be a, a pretty major critique about people who are maybe in power, positions of power oppressing those underneath of that. But then that gets labeled mm-hmm. like socialism by people in the world of this of of, mm-hmm. of, of this space. A- any thoughts maybe for you as a biblical scholar, like, you know, when you read the Bible, it's easy to see why you might walk away from fundamentalism, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sort of is a joke that it's it's hard to study the Bible in its original context, whether you're talking about the New Testament or Old Testament, and remain, let's say, fundamentalist. It's very, very hard to do that because you see how the sausage is made, and you realize this is complex historical literature. And it is. I mean, the, the, these are books that were written at certain times. They have context. They talk about events that are ancient events that have context. And as soon as – see, this is the, uh, this is the, the dark underbelly of having a, a faith that's rooted in history. The Christian faith is a historical faith. It's rooted in stories and narratives and things from the deep past. As soon as you do that, you open that up to historical inquiry. Mm. And that's what people do when they study history. And the thing is, what opens the Bible up most to historical inquiry is the Bible itself. Because it's like, okay, these Gospels are simply not agreeing on who came to the tomb and the resurrection. You know, um, I want to hear about Israel's history. Okay, are you going to read First and Second Chronicles or are you going to read Samuel and Kings? Because boy, oh boy, do they tell a different story. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is it's this is baked into the DNA of Scripture itself to resist that very same simplistic. I'm going to say simplistic appeal to things like biblical authority or historic Christianity. What we're dealing with really there is what um, the previous commenter said is, ironically, it's it's what our tradition has already determined that the Bible says. In right. fact, it's what our tradition has already determined what the Bible is. Mm. And if you deviate from that, you have therefore deviated from historic Christianity. Right. And I just want to jump up and down and say no. That's what we're calling reformation. So one of the things you argue, Tim, I want you to weigh in here is that at the root of this really is biblical authority, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, go. totally. I actually think that I I I was going to pull up a tweet. I took a screenshot just this morning that I Ooh. saw. And basically the person said, according to the Bible, and they crossed out Bible. They had an orange pen, not a red pen. Crossed out Bible. And then they put a book written by an ancient book written by men wow. that was passed on by whoever. And it just went on like that. Now, Sean acts surprised here, but the man has a PhD in like this world. Surely he knows like we can trace back, to, I'm guessing to a decent degree, that yes, the Bible was written and passed down and interpreted. Now, you know, if you want to lay on the category of it was inspired, you're, you're free to do that. But as far as yeah, like the right. origin story of the Bible, that's that's pretty widely accepted by almost anyone, I would think. 
Well, it's it's incontestable that the Bible was written by human beings in human languages and passed down, sometimes not very well, sometimes with a lot of diversity. I mean, we can talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how important they are for understanding the origins of the biblical text. This is This is true. Now, you can lay terms like inspiration and revelation and authority over that process, and I have no problem doing that. Sure. But you can't ignore the process as you're doing it. Right. right? Yeah. So in biblical authority, well, let's talk about the nature of the Bible. Let's just read it together. Let's pick a book and let's, let's see where the questions come up because they've been coming up long, long before people started using the word deconstruction. It's baked into the, the histories of Judaism and Christianity. Yeah. And I, I, for me, that's not, uh-oh, that's not a bug in the system. Right. That's telling us something about what we're dealing with and why that's exciting to deal with. But, yeah. you know, to, to, to push all that aside and say, well, none of that matters or doesn't even exist or, oh, oh yeah, the Bible is written by people. How silly is that? It's not silly. It's exactly what happened. What role does God play in there? Great question. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, let's engage on that topic. And what it, you think the Bible's authoritative. Great. I'm seeing all these things happen. What do you mean by authority? Let's talk about what authority means. But to treat these as simply black and white, unalterable categories that are not debated by any serious Christian is not just naive. It hurts other people. This is the, this is the real point that I'm after. It, it, people trapped in this way of thinking no wonder they deconstruct, for heaven's sake. They see right. this stuff, and then they read the Bible, because they've been told, read the Bible, it's the Word of God. Well, I did, and I'm in chapter 6 of the Bible, and everybody dies. Right, right. Or I'm in chapter right. 2, and it's a different story than chapter 1, or the right. Gospels differ. Right? And it's not just here and there. Uh, you know, multivocality, which you know ha- we haven't really used that word yet, but multivocality is – it's a new word. I think people, at least in biblical study, people were talking about it more. It's, it's getting more airtime. But the diversity of the literature and the Bible itself, in my opinion, I'm, I'm very strong on this. It resists the notion of saying there's just a biblical worldview or a biblical authority that's rather flat. It's mm-hmm. much more dynamic than that and, frankly, much more interesting. Yeah, I agree. Human book. And then it said in the kind of the comment, the, the kind of the tag underneath said, if the Bible said that affirming that we shouldn't affirm queer people, then I wouldn't care. If the Bible said we should affirm queer people, I wouldn't care either. So it was like, I don't care. The, the, the bottom line was, I don't care what the mm. Bible says. I would ask maybe a progressive Christian or someone who's deconstructed, but still maybe thinks that there's a God and that there's some moral rules to follow or something. Ask them the question, is there anywhere that what you believe about God and his His teaching, his commands, is there anywhere where it disagrees with your own beliefs? Or are they all the same? Are all your beliefs the exact same as what Jesus believes or what you think God believes? Because frankly, there are things that I, there are commands and there are doctrines that I don't necessarily like. For example, the doctrine of hell, that that I still believe because Jesus taught the reality of hell. Okay, you're chomping at the bit. I'll let you go first on this one. I have thoughts, but you, you, you can go first, Pete. Yeah, I hear what Tim is saying, and I think you know he's reacting again to, to what he sees online and maybe not without reason, but 
I guess one thing I would say is, you know, Tim, do you agree with everything the Bible says, everything the Bible teaches? And at some point you have to deal with slavery. Now, I know that the apologetics industry has a way of getting around slavery. It's not really slavery. It is. That's utter nonsense. It's absolutely slavery they're talking about, enslaving people from other nations. There is debate about whether you can enslave people within Israel. Hmm. There are actually three different opinions in the Bible. In Exodus, in Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, they have three different opinions on how that should work out. But enslaving people from other nations, knock yourself out, right? So yeah. w- would you do that? Well, the Bible doesn't actually teach that. Okay, are we going to get into now what is a biblical teaching and what isn't? Right. Right? Well, I just want to point out, I want to point out on this for me, the answer actually is yes. Like, like love your enemies. I don't like loving my enemies. Uh, Give your money away. Like Zacchaeus, you know, like repay your people that you exploit four times. I want Mm -hmm. money, Pete. I want a huge expensive Tesla in my driveway, you know, based on me getting wealth. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, there are things in my head that like, I'm like, I want that. I think, you know, according to being a Christian, maybe Mm -hmm. I'm not called to do. So I, I find that, that, again, this always, in my experience, when it comes to interacting with these types of folks, it comes down to like, 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 like the same issues. Hell, which Tim quoted here, you know, the doctrine of hell that Jesus talks about, usually comes down to, to something about human sexuality, in particular, being LGBTQ+. And then it comes down to mm-hmm. being labeled a progressive Christian. Like Those are kind of the big three that kind of get circled around when we talk about this right. and, and, and the way they... I guess, criticize it is by trying to draw that because I'm queer affirming, I'm not submitting myself to the authority of the Bible, which apparently is clear on this. Unlike someone like Tim, who can say, well, look, there's things in the Bible I submit to, like the doctrine of hell. That's kind of, I think, what his angle is on this. Right. Yeah. I, I might just say that hell is not a doctrine. It's never been a doctrine in the Christian church. It's more just a strong belief. I am happy that, you know, unlike some people I've heard, Tim doesn't talk about hell here with, uh, you know, a, a skip in his step and, and, and a glimmer in his eye. I think some love this idea of hell because it makes all the bad people go away. And it's and it, if you do believe in it, it should be something that you are very, very cautious about talking about. I mean, you, you get it. I get it too, Tim. I, people disagree with me on a theological point is that you're, you're from the demons. You're going straight yeah. to hell when you die. You'll burn forever. Yeah. And I, I don't listen to that because I, I, I know that they're wrong. But other people don't. See, that, that's why we shouldn't mess around with this idea too much. But anyway, I applaud Tim on, on you know, being a little bit more gentle about this idea of hell. The Bible doesn't work very well as a standard, I think, for certain things because it's so all over the place at times. And it's also uh, coming to us from a world that's very different. I don't think we should stone rebellious teenagers. <laughs> right. That is a clear biblical teaching mm. in Deuteronomy, right? Now, you might want to look at Deuteronomy and say, okay, listen, what's, what's the rhetoric of the book of Deuteronomy? What, what's happening there theologically? And that might give you a slightly different angle on this. I say, and I, I, to that I say, okay, that's a great conversation to have. We're beyond proof texting. We're looking now at historical context and literary context for determining what is this even saying. Right? Yeah. But I'm not seeing a lot of that here. Not not in the rhetoric, at least not here. That may be elsewhere, but I'm not seeing it here. I will say, just for the sake of of clarity and for the audience, I did watch the entire interview. They don't unpack. They 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 yeah. never really describe the term biblical authority or historic Christianity. Like those are terms that are just kind of assumed. 
And I am, what I'm doing is, is that I'm, I'm imputing what I have experienced um, those definitions to be in these spaces. So if Elisa, Sean, or Tim want to maybe push back and say, actually, you have it wrong, I'm, I'm happy to have the conversation. I've talked to all three of them before, and I'm going to share in a little bit a clip of Sean, actually, about this uh, when it comes to mm-hmm. truth. Right. But right. but yeah, I mean, these these phrases have, have been explained by evangelicalism for a long time, and people like me who, who grew up on it know exactly, you know, what's behind those presuppositions. So... Let's right. go ahead. I, I want to get in, in, into the 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 truth claim section here of this because I think truth is a, is kind of okay. at the heart of this for, for these folks. Let, let's see what we got here. I think that going back to this whole idea of truth, it's a couple of things came together when we were researching this book. I know Sean, you I think you probably do this in your talks too. Did you do the ice cream versus insulin kind I of the do, truth yeah. test? And you know that when you do the kind of the truth test and you ask the question, say abortion is wrong. Is that an ice cream subjective claim that just depends mm-hmm. on you? Or is it an insulin claim, like an objective claim that depends on something outside of you, on reality? I just want to point out that even this example is not good, you know, because uh, yeah, uh, yeah. abortion is actually, despite what 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 I would argue would be evangelical fundamentalists and also Christian nationalists want you to believe, the discussion of abortion has been widely discussed in Christian thought. In fact, I think it was in the 70s, Christianity Today had 25 various scholars weigh in on the topic. And uh, the majority said, yeah, it's very ambiguous. But again, like you wouldn't really know that. You're just kind of told by Tim, oh, it's obviously objectively wrong, and all, which would mean in all cases it's wrong when that's just not the case. But I just want to throw that out there. And when mm-hmm. you make a moral claim, oftentimes, we do this in churches, the room, go, the hands go up for ice cream. It's a subjective thing. And the same is true when it comes to a lot of religious claims. If I put up Jesus is the only way, cream is what they yell. It's no surprise that people are using the word deconstruction and this idea. Again, this has postmodern roots. I get faith deconstruction, postmodern deconstruction. They're two different things, but they actually are related. Okay. Yeah. So Jesus is the only way he puts in the objective truth category, right? This is uh, what he claims is is insulin and insulin claim in this. I mean, I, right. I think that is just how, how, when you hear people, because this is said often, right? And they usually quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They'll, they'll quote some part of scripture to justify it. Uh, when you hear people say that, Pete, like, how do you think about that? Because to me, I'm like, I'm like, how do you objectively prove such a claim? Like, if, if the claim is, this is, a, this is an objective truth that is dependent outside well, I, of me, what do we do with that? My, 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 my hunch, though, is that I think, I think pretty clearly what Tim is, is saying here is that it's an objective truth because it's it's expressly set down in a Bible verse. Mm. And it's objective for that sense because, remember, the Bible is the authority. If the Bible says X, that is an objective truth. Mm. Right? That's, that's what I'm hearing him saying. So he's saying it's not, it's not a matter of opinion. It's objective, right? Now, we could talk all about the Gospels and how they present Jesus and and you know, why there's a strand of universalism that goes back to the early days of Christianity. Some people would argue Paul himself was something of a universalist in Romans 5. But that's a whole other discussion. You know, abortion is, is a great example that you brought up for the reasons you brought up, Tim, that there is no verse in the Bible that says don't abort a fetus. That argument has to be made broader than the Bible, it is actually, again, 
I say this somewhat supportively, it's a theological argument they're making. They just think it's a biblical argument, but it's not. Hmm. It's a theological argument based on, you know, the the preciousness of all life, and we believe life begins in the womb and that sort of thing. But um, it's it is it actually undermines the point slightly, at least, that we're all about biblical authority. We're not. No one is just about biblical authority. It's right. the Bible that we've been handed, that we have inherited from our faith tradition. Not just the books of the Bible, but how to understand it. What verses get priority over other verses? Yeah. That's All that is at work here with, with Tim and Sean and Elisa. All of that is at work. They have with them something that has already been packaged. And any interpretation that deviates from that is called some pretty strong names. Yep. And I just want to say, welcome to true historic Christianity and look and see the diversity of thought in the history of Christianity about all sorts of things and how people have changed their minds about all sorts of things. This is part of our tradition. Now, it makes it a little bit more messy, right? but this is an adult faith, not a child faith. This mm. is not, we can take ambiguity. We can take like, I'm not really sure where this goes. We'll sit on it for a while. And in the meantime, don't think that God's hanging your head ready, ready to destroy you for not having absolute clarity and certainty. Yeah. This is, this is why people deconstruct because again, of this rhetoric that they say, I can't live like this. Right. I just can't. Right. Especially when. And ask them t- why. Yeah. And ask them why they're deconstructing. Don't just say it's bad and evil. Ask them. What is it specifically? What is going on? And don't come back with Bible verses to prove them because they probably know them. But ask what's going on that has driven you to this point where you're you're thinking that parts of your inherited faith are not true. This is what happened to Elisa, right? Where she mm-hmm. was involved with a progressive pastor, and and it, you know it, it unsettled her. I don't know her story completely. I've read it, but I, I don't really know her that well. But you know she she recoiled against that. And now we have, again, a career based on that kind of emotional, psychological, experiential response. And the thought that what Lisa and others are saying is objective, no, it's highly subjective. It's it's yeah. part of your experience is bringing you to see things and accept them and not see other things that would you know, not confirm what you're already thinking. Yeah. This, this, and this is, a, this is a problem people struggle with. Hundred percent. I want to respond to this comment really quick from Meg. Meg, first off, thanks for being here. It means a lot. You said Elisa, Tim, and Sean aren't saying we don't question our faith and simply just double down on biblical authority when we experience doubt. They have all had they have all had seasons of doubt like you are describing. Meg, I hear you on this, but a couple of things. First off, I mean Tim Barnett just admitted that 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 there are some doctrines that he doesn't you know find palatable and that he has to submit to biblical authority is the idea behind it. But number two. The issue for me, and and I actually agree with people who are like, you know, no, no, we welcome questions. I actually agree with that statement because my evangelical tradition welcomed my questions as long as I landed at their answers. That is the key here, right? So the key for Elisa, Tim, and Sean is not ask the questions. In fact, they 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 live in the apologetics world. They want the questions, but that's because in my experience of seeing their content, they already have the answers to give you. And now once you step outside of that answer, that's when you're no longer you know, taking the Bible mm-hmm. seriously or that's when you're no longer part of the historic Christian faith. So I just want to draw just that little bit of nuance there because I totally understand 
Yeah. Um, and, and you will well, see folks like like this say, please ask the questions, but they already have the answer ready to go of why hell is eternal conscious torment, of why the Bible is inerrant, right. uh, what, what, you know, insert major evangelical the, theological point here. What, right, what's missing uh, uh, is there. you don't have – the doubt does not play a positive role in the development of your life of faith. Mm. The doubt is – we all have doubts, but the purpose now our, – our goal now is to essentially answer those doubts and squash them based on the very system that raised those doubts in the first place. This is the problem. And maybe, maybe, maybe – those doubts are, they could even be God speaking to you saying, don't think you've got it all down. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm falling apart. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to think anymore. Maybe you need to not know what you think anymore, at least for a while as, as you rebuild this thing, that's called reconstruction, right? As you rebuild this thing to something that is, that doesn't have the blind spots. And by the way, we all have blind spots, Tim. I've got blind spots. People point them out to me all the time. Thank you, by the way. Um, but, you know, it's it's. Um, I, I just think this faith thing is so much more interesting and so much more wrapped up in our full humanity, not just our ability to know some talking points and to 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 you know cite a Bible verse against somebody who really has maybe a very important point to make. I agree. Hello, my name is Sharon Roggio. I am the director of 1946 The Movie. We know that there is harmful rhetoric that seeps into our culture that sometimes comes from our church buildings. We know the impact of fundamentalist theology that is designed to uplift certain groups and marginalize others. We also recognize that this is an issue that needs to be dealt with with care and empathy, as oftentimes it is our loved ones who uphold these beliefs. And that is why I support Project Amplify. Never in our lives have we been more inundated with misinformation and disinformation, but Project Amplify provides good information and a middle ground to give us some hope around a lot of this misguided information and beliefs. If you'd like to help Project Amplify, please consider a donation today and you can find out more with the click in the link below. Thank you. Cream is what they yell. It's no surprise that people are using the word deconstruction and this idea, again, this has postmodern roots. I get faith deconstruction, postmodern deconstruction. They're it really is hard to know like why they hate postmodern <laughs> thoughts so much, but uh, I oh, mean, it's I not know the Bible. exactly why they hate. I know exactly why they hate postmodern oh. because they're modernists. They're they're absolute <laughs> modernists, and modernists don't like postmodern because postmodern says that intellectual foundation that you think you have doesn't exist because it itself is the product of your own cultured and cultured subjectivity. Mm. Right. That doesn't mean there's no such thing as truth. It just means that we don't apprehend things as they truly are. We see things through our lenses. Right. That's the heart of postmodernism. There are all sorts of weird postmodernisms. I'm not talking about that. Postmodern is the modern becoming conscious of itself. And it's seeing that, you know, the modern agenda that thinks that we can have answers to all things through logic or analysis or experimentation or evidence after a while, that doesn't work very well because you realize a lot of the people pushing that historically, in theology at least, were affluent European white men. Mm. And people have said, you know, um, 
I'm just thinking here, you might be missing some things. You might be reading <laughs> things through your own lenses, through your own right. experience, through other ways of looking at this. Yeah. What that does is it takes away that, I'm going to say the myth of objectivity begins to crumble. And mm. that sends modernists into an absolute panic. Mm. And, yeah. and th- that is the apologetics industry. Now, I do want to make a, a cautionary statement here. I know Christians who are highly educated, who are interested in apologetics. I think that's a different kind of conversation. That's not what we're dealing with at this particular moment. Mm. But that being said, apologetics is defending essentially a modernist agenda. Mm. And postmodernism is its own thing, but people have argued it's got a lot more in common with, let's say, the early Reformation or at least the medieval church and how they thought about the nature of reality before the modernist project, which is always bad for some people. Right? That creates liberals. Well, it also created evangelicals and fundamentalists. Mm, and yeah. the question is, how do we navigate that? How can we be self-conscious about our own time in history that affects the very rhetoric we use like deconstruction is bad or historic Christianity or biblical authority. Yeah, I agree. Two different things, but they actually are related. It's not surprising that people are talking the way they talk in the deconstruction world about preferences and feelings. And that's just Mm. true for you, but that's not true for me. You said that. I just want to point out in that little clip there. I mean, that is also like just evangelicalism. I mean, <laughs> you have your sensationist, your cessationist, you got your Pentecostals, you got this person, you got that. I mean, they all without they don't use that language, but there's a reason why just in my own faith tradition growing up an evangelical conservative fundamentalist, I experienced very different ways of being Christian over some pretty key things. I mean, there are people out there that I knew who would argue that if you didn't have the second gift of the Holy Spirit in the Pentecostal sense, you might not be a real Christian, right? So, I mean, it's just ironic to me. And and to be fair, and we'll get into this, Tim and Elisa do acknowledge that evangelicalism doesn't really have a standard and and that is a problem for them. So Mm -hmm. I'm happy Mm -hmm. happy to see them do that. But, uh, you know, just because he used, I guess, more modern language of, you know, feelings and and subjectivity doesn't mean that it's not even happening in, in the faith tradition that he claims is holding on to some form of, of, of objective truth. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. The construction yeah. movement right. isn't about mm. submitting to the truth. Here we go. Instead, it's about people choosing their own truth. Now, let me read it again. And I know you know this line, but some people listening are going to say, wait a minute. I'm just following what I think is true. This is going to trigger some folks. If you ever have a conversation with a deconstructionist, Sean, it might be to ask them, you know, if they were to push back on what we're saying right now, or if you were to suggest that and they push back on it, just say, okay, let me ask you a question. If you did have access to what the creator of the universe said about sexuality and you didn't like it, would you still believe it? I think that- All right. There you go. I mean, that that's kind of the question, right? That I think is is important that we at least address in, mm-hmm. in, in that in that slew of things is, well, if you did have the creator of the universe's objective standard in front of you, would you submit to it? I mean, I, again, this and, and it's clear for me that this means the Bible for them, right? Like if you understood the Bible the right way, that is the creator of all things, the one that spoke life into existence over billions mm-hmm. of years. You know, this is their command for humanity. So for you not to submit to it is you not submitting to your creator. That's kind of how the line of thinking goes. 
Right. And my question would be, do you submit to everything this creator says to you in this book, such as give away all that you own and give it to the poor? Right. Right. We don't do that. Um, but I mean, that, I don't want that to sound like a cheap shot. The, 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 the deeper issue here is one we've touched on a few times already this past hour, the nature of biblical authority. Yes. Do you think that the Bible is God speaking to us? unfiltered, just do what it says. Right. And my answer is absolutely not. Who has actually ever thought that in the history of Christianity? I mean, there have been different views on the Bible, certainly conservative views on the Bible, but that view is one that is much more of a populist view and not one that learned Christians have held. And, and again, I don't mean to sound elitist, but we're dealing here with some historical claims that are being made here in this, in this uh, video and they're not ones that would be accepted by, I, I'm going to say, most Christians who have been around the block with some of these things. It's mm. again, it's 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 not that the, you know, no one here is saying the Bible's bad, Christianity's stupid. It's like it's actually much more interesting than that, and and a little bit more difficult to um, get a handle on. And and I think that's part of the life of faith. And and to and to converse over these kinds of difficulties. You know, at least it, what makes you think that the God of the universe is speaking in this text? Don't just say it, defend it. Hmm. And don't defend it by what you think the Bible has to be for your theological system. Actually defend that view that the Bible is God speaking to us. And then we can yeah. talk about other examples. Do you think God is speaking here? Do you think God is speaking here? Do you think God is speaking here? Right. And it's it's basically the equating of the Bible with God's authority. That that that's part of the the gift given to us by you know modern evangelicalism and fundamentalism. Yeah, I, I want to recommend for folks out there who maybe want to hear different perspectives on biblical inerrancy that you're also in, Pete. Uh, is this one right here? It's a great book. Oh, that one, Five yeah. Views on mm -hmm. Biblical Inerrancy. And the reason why I bring it up, and maybe we can park here just for a minute and we'll get back to, I, I have so many more clips to get to. We'll see how many we can get through by the end of this broadcast. But Al Mohler is the person who probably represents the, the most fundamentalist view of inerrancy, I think, out, out of the cool. authors. And he literally says at one point, no matter what we discover in terms of science or history, you can never, it can never overwrite whatever the Bible says. I mean, I remember reading a, a part where he pretty much says like, like, like if archaeology definitely proved that, um, you know, the walls of Jericho did not fall down, it would not yeah. matter. We take the Bible as the final authority in, 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 in all matters of truth. And I got to say, like, to your point earlier, if you want to know why folks are deconstructing, that right. is it, yeah. right? Yeah. Because it's That's so it. difficult yeah. to be told your whole life that we're all about truth. We care about integrity. Wherever the truth leads us, we want to go. And then the second we take one step, not out of Christianity, but out of modern evangelical fundamentalism, all of a sudden we're told that we're no longer actually after truth, even though I think, Pete, and you're, you're the academic mm. here, but I think it's pretty clear that we have good evidence to believe that the walls of Jericho did indeed not fall down, literally. Now, does that mean that, that, mm. that, 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 does that mean that the story of Jericho isn't meaningful or that there isn't wisdom in there? Of course not. But, you know, when these things happen, it's like you're forced to choose between suspending your logic and rationale and also the study of people who have given their lives to that field in, in, mm -hmm. in, in, in you know, in, in trading it for, well, this modern Protestant English Bible says this, so that must be the real truth. Right. And um, 
again, I think that's one of the challenges that we have to deal with that kind of a mentality. And, um, it doesn't matter what anything else tells us. It only matters what the Bible says. That's a great way to live in a way, right? Cause I mean, all, all the questions are taken off the table, but again, I want to, I want to, I, I, I keep saying this. I'm going to say it again. That's not how Judaism and Christianity developed. They were interrogating the text. They were trying to understand it. You know, go back to, you know, the third century origin who said, yeah, all this violence in the Bible that God does, that can't be true because God just isn't like that. So he read those texts allegorically. Hmm. Now you might say, ah, that's his problem. He didn't accept, you know, biblical authority. It's like, Dude, the guy was a genius. That doesn't mean he's right about everything, but it isn't like he's just getting up one day and putting something on social media and like, you know, the orange marker that Tim's talking about crossing things out. This is right. this is a a one of the 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 lights of Christian history, even though he was sort of vilified for a while, but he's sort of made a comeback. But you know, th- th- this is what people have thought for a very, very long time. Now, are you going to accuse him of deconstructing or something like that or just just trying to be a thoughtful person? And, yeah. and how do I engage this ancient tradition that was written you know, in, in the Iron Age where people thought about certain things a little bit differently than people would think about things in you know, third century Christendom? Yeah. Uh, while I have you here, can you just explain to the audience and to me Maybe briefly, and if, if this is too big of an ask, let me know. And we can park it for a different time. But can you kind of give me, like, just explain to people how history, how we think about it, is not how history works in the mind of, like, a Hebrew person trying to record history. Does that make sense? Like, like we're much more interested in, like, 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 like the camcorder footage, you know, as Tim Mackey would say, what actually happened. But that doesn't seem to be, from what I understand, to be the main focus or even priority sometimes of people in the Bible who are telling the story of, maybe the Israelites or even the stories of Jesus. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be their point is let's get objective history, right? Even see, even Luke's gospel, right? The way it begins with Theophilus, I've done my research. Here it is. I want you to understand this gospel. It's like, dude, you just dissed Matthew, Mark and John, because they don't say things that you say, or they say it very, very differently. Right. So, you know, it's, it's even for Luke, who I think evangelicals like Luke because he acts like an evangelical just a little bit. I've done my research. Here's what I've come up with. <laughs> sure. But, you know, it's um, that that is, I, I think, steamrolling over the complexity of these texts and the complexities of what they mean by history. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, the, the Old Testament historians, the writer of Chronicles is absolutely a historian. But history for him is a vehicle for telling a story of encouragement to his people. So he says things that are factually not true. Mm. I mean, I, I, we don't have to go into details, but things that just didn't happen. And the sure. things that I think everybody knew that it didn't happen because it really flatly contradicts First and Second Samuel and Kings. But that's his story. And that's why the historians were more storytellers than mm. they were factual. You know, if you had a video camera with you, what would you see you know right and you can almost do this and drop your finger down someplace at least in the hebrew bible and come up with the same thing that these are people telling stories even the differences in the law codes between well-known people 
libraries are full of books talking about how Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, how they differ in specific laws, because each of those law codes comes from a people mm. that's telling their story. Yeah. That's telling the story of faith in the God of Israel. And one says, you know, uh, male slaves can go, male Hebrew slaves can go free after seven years, but female slaves can't. That's Exodus. And Deuteronomy comes along and says, no, both male and female slaves can go free. Mm -hmm. And then Leviticus says, you shouldn't even be keeping your own people as slaves anyway. Mm -hmm. You were slaves in Egypt. Don't do this. Enslave other people. Knock yourself out, but don't do it to your own people. These are all people that they don't just disagree on laws. These they interpret laws in ways that fit into their the narrative of their own people. Yeah. Yeah. You can't escape that biblically. And to expect from this text objective historical knowledge that will settle all debates, I don't honestly, I don't even know where to begin with this, other than to say, and I mean this with complete respect, you've got to read your Bible. Just really, really read it, not finding the passages that help you, but make believe you've never read it before. Yeah, yeah. Like those yeah. people who are deconstructing, maybe make just get it out of your head completely and just now <laughs> read it. And t you tell me what you think about this, that, or the other. You know, some people might be listening and are like, oh, I feel very unsettled thinking about Luke, you know, or whoever, um, you know, telling a story and adding parts that might not be historically true. But maybe one way to think about it is this happens in our own time too. A very common example that I've used before, and for you Americans out there, you know, we often have uh, are under the impression that Paul Revere was the one who who rode on a horse yelling, "The British are coming." That, that's a very iconic story, but he actually never said that. <laughs> he just didn't. Now he did warn that the British were coming in his own way, but that him riding through a town yelling that didn't actually happen. Now, does that ruin? Paul Revere or the point of what was happening? No. Most of us mm -hmm. can have no problem saying, oh, I didn't know that wasn't a true thing. It, it was Lord. That's cool and move on. But for some reason, when, when, when we're told things about the Bible like that, mm -hmm. suddenly our whole worldview is put into a tailspin because, right. and again, same thing uh, to your point, with all due respect to Tim, Elisa, and Sean, the industry that they're a part of has set us up for failure the second we interrogate the text four inches beneath the surface, mm -hmm. right? And all of a sudden, yeah. the truth that we thought we knew about actually isn't what the Bible's even after, and that's a real problem for us. And I, I think, or, or, oh God, yeah. Go yeah no, good. no, I was just saying, or not even interrogate the text, but just frankly reading it and letting it do what it does. And if you see a tension, don't say, well, that can't be here because God would never do this. Guess yeah. what? If you believe in inspiration, God did do that. Here right. we have these two different stories. What are they telling us? Right. right? Right. Maybe they're telling us this author has a certain theology. Why does this author have this theology and another author has a different one? What can we learn from the interplay between these two people in sacred scripture? What yes. can we learn about our own lives of thinking through difficult theological matters and sometimes disagreeing with each other about them? The Bible is such a beautiful model for that sort of thing. And to, yeah. to flatten it out is I just wouldn't do that. Well, I'll say it. In my opinion, it does a great disservice to the text. I argue often that in my, from my vantage point, it is the fundamentalists who do not take the Bible seriously enough. They are simply mm -hmm. mapping on a very modern view onto a collection of books and texts that have no such worldview and saying, you got to make it work. And to me, that's not right. taking the Bible seriously. I mean, you say it in this book, Biblical Inerrancy, the five views of it. 
this might not be the Bible we like, but it's the Bible that we have. You know, like this is yeah. it. Like, you know, we have to deal with it. I I, I, I want to kind of put a cap on, on this part of the discussion. Then we're going to move on to the actual deconstruction stuff and like some of their critiques. And I have a lot of thoughts on that. But I did, folks, I'm not sure if you know this, but I actually interviewed Sean McDowell. I interviewed him last year. We had a great mm -hmm. talk. Right. Sean is so charitable. I think even how he how he um, holds himself on his on his own you know, YouTube's, he's a very charitable person. He's not someone who dehumanizes. I appreciate that. But remember, we just played tons of clips about truth, objective truth, you know, uh, knowing of uh, 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 certain, uh, I should say, having objective uh, objectivity. I just played all of those clips talking about how the Bible, biblical authority, et cetera. I asked Sean a question. Check this out. Hear, what, hear how he responds. Okay, let me ask you a question to make sure I'm understanding you correctly first before I assume. You know, would you say that like we can we can objectively prove certain realities about the Christian tradition, like for example, the physical resurrection? Like that's an objective truth that physically definitely happened in history, objectively speaking. No, I don't think we can definitively prove it because I would not use the term proof. I would say the resurrection, we have good reason to believe that it's true. I think we have knowledge about that. But I wouldn't use the term prove and proof and absolute when talking about something 2,000 years ago in history. That's not how history operates. Now, I know right now someone's going to cut that clip and do a whole thing. And go, <laughs> Hi, Sean. Works. We're, not, so doing We're not doing that. We're not doing that, We're not doing that. But I mean, the, 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 when, when I when – I, when I heard him say that, my jaw dropped because I thought, then where do we disagree? Because I, there is a universe between maybe being confident, having some, you know, some sense of knowledge about it, having evidence for it. There's a universe between that and this is objectively true. And if you don't mm -hmm. believe it, you're just, you're just out. Like you're just not a Christian, mm -hmm. which in their minds means you're not really saved. I, and then yet yeah, at the same time, Sean can go on his own podcast, have this conversation about truth and objectivity and biblical authority. Sure. And I'm like, but Sean, you even admitted that, that, that the biblical text is not sufficient enough to objectively prove that the resurrection sure. objectively happened. Sure. I, don't, I, sure. I don't even know how to make sense of that. It just drives me crazy. Well, I mean, I, I, I appreciate the admission, you know, and, and I, I am sensitive to like a clip and people getting the wrong idea, blah, blah, blah. But, but you know, he did say that, right? And, totally. and um, I think that it's, it's, it's wise to say what we can and can't prove objectively, which is, a, frankly, most everything in reality. Um, but, you know, I, I yeah, I, I think that... Um, the real, to me, the real question in this specific thing comes down to this. Sean, how would you talk to somebody who says, I have some doubts about the resurrection of Jesus, and I've thought about this, I've done some reading, here's what I think. How would that person be engaged? Now, I would bet that Sean one-on-one -on -one, would have a conversation with him, but on the larger scale of, let's say, a more public venue of a church— um, I, I can imagine a person like that in certain uh, circles being ostracized pretty darn quickly and silenced for taking what Sean just said and going maybe one step further with it and saying it's not just this is not just an abstract thing for me. I'm actually concerned about how does atonement work? 
that's not an objective fact either. You can't objectively prove that Jesus died for your sins. Mm. You might be, well, you can probably objectively prove that Jesus died because he was a person. Okay. That, that's, that's, that's fine enough. But for that, I mean, those are, there are all sorts of things in the Christian faith that just, they don't subject themselves to this objectivity. Yeah. They just don't. And it's okay to admit that this is a life of faith. And I want to live into that question. I want to live into that doubt and, and let it, let it be a vehicle by which I might actually be able to commune with God more closely. Yeah. Rather than here are the rules. I can't deviate. I have to stay on the beach blanket. Heaven help me that if I move one step away, God's going to zap me because I'm not holding on to the truth. That's a hard way to live. And I'm not sure if that's the abundant life that Jesus is talking about in John either. Like, what does it mean to live with God? Does it mean to live with that kind of fear or just a sense of certainty about everything? I mean, is that what this is about? I, 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 in my age, I say, I don't think this is at all what it's about. Yeah. All right. I want to move in. So this whole interview, I was watching it. Okay. I get it. But then it took a turn that surprised me. Sean asked the question, if people who deconstruct were actually saved to begin with, listen to the responses here. I'm going to dive into this and, and kind of address them because I got to say, I was pretty shocked to hear the response. Do you think most people who deconstruct, if you can say most, if not many, were ever in the faith? And before you answer, because I realize this is a dangerous question going on the record, I will tell you what I think from my experience. I don't think most were. Now, I'm going to get some hate mail wow. for this. Yes, you are, some Sean. Are from me. really critique me, and there's two reasons why. I'm not saying all. That's not my point. I can't judge anybody's heart. The one okay. question uh, I've asked uh, on air but, and over but, again. But, but, but to be fair, oops, sorry, to, uh, to be fair here, I mean, he just made an assertion that most have, in his estimation, have not been, are not saved. And then says, well, I can't judge their heart. Like, okay, that's kind of a cop-out, dude. You just judge the heart of most deconstructionists by asserting that they were never saved. I just want to point that out. Mm-hmm. Right out for forgiveness. Uh, I will here? tell you what I think from my experience. I don't think most were. Now, I'm going to get some hate mail for this. Some people are going to really critique me, and there's two reasons why. I'm not saying all. That's not my point. I can't judge anybody's heart. But one question I've asked on air and over again in person is not the story of somebody leaving the faith, but tell me when you got in. Tell me that moment when you realized you were a sinner in need of God's grace, and you cried out for forgiveness. It's incredible how many times, the vast majority of times, I get a blank stare, which I'm 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 kind of shocked to hear Sean get say that he got blank stares because I mean at least for me and for the people I engage with I mm-hmm. must have prayed that prayer every night <laughs> every altar call I was walking down mm-hmm. the aisle you know confessing to, of 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 my wretched depravity for I don't know lusting or something like that and asking God to forgive me and that I was a sinner I mean I I it just is difficult but also I think this does actually highlight for Sean what it means to be a Christian which is to have this moment of when you right. admit that you are just this sinner person and need to trust God for right. uh, presumably, you know, not going to hell when you die. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're the, the scholar here. Is, is that like, is that the only way to be a Christian in, in the historic Christian faith? Like, how do you, th- how do you make sense of that? Well, I mean, I think, I think you're right, uh, Tim, what you just said that it's, this presumes the evangelical conversion narrative, right? And it's not one that everyone throughout history has agreed with, right? I mean, crying out for forgiveness, that one-time thing, and if you've done that, you've had this conversion experience, and now maybe some bumps along the road, but you're, you're, you're moving in the right direction. 
And if you walk away from that, well, you never really were saved to begin with. Mm. But, you know, what if, what if the evangelical conversion story isn't really salvation at all? Right. Now, I want to say I had a conversion experience in high school, and it's genuine. I'm just way past the, the um, I'm way past the way God met me when I was 16. Yeah. And what I am now at 63. I am not yeah. the same person. I don't think about reality the same way. I don't think about God, the Bible the same way. But God met me in a way that was needed at that time. And I can point to that. But for me to say, and this has now fueled everything. This is, a, this is the moment I keep coming back to. That's just not true. I know plenty of people. And here's where I have to, you know, defend my, you know, my, my, departed Calvinist heritage here a little bit. <laughs> they, they Calvinists hate this kind of rhetoric. They're saying, mm-hmm. um, what if you were raised in a covenant home and you don't have a conversion experience? Then what? Right. <laughs> right? I mean, do, do I have to have an evangelical conversion experience? Now, the thing is that in the Bible, there are examples of people having this dramatic move from, you know, uh, death to life. And I understand that, but the Bible doesn't tell us the way everything should always be happening. That's mm-hmm. again, that's part of the problem. The Bible is the Bible can be every bit, the word of God, and it can also be limited in its scope. Yeah. And right. I don't think the Bible addresses every scenario. So I, I reject the premise of this point. Yeah, I agree. Um, Christy says, I was a serial aisle walker from age five to 20. Come at me, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got to keep going for sake of time. Here You're we go. You're part of the club sociologically, but maybe not fully in the faith. The second thing is when I look at a lot of people who are deconstructing in the way you describe it and do TikTok videos, the theological critiques are so often so shallow and indicate yeah. they're attacking a straw man. Either they're yeah. intentionally <laughs> twisting the Christianity because they're angry about it, or they never understood it in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I can't say all, I would never say that. But in my experience, in my research, I think most people who have deconstructed again in the way of just leaving the Christian faith were not in the Christian faith in the first place. Mm. She said the primary belief. Now, I, 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 I want to yeah, play this clip. Yeah. Oh, go, well, go, ahead. go ahead. Go first, Pete. No, you're good. No, I was just going to suggest that, I, I mean, I'm not trying to score points here, but I, I see some of those things on TikTok as well. Mm-hmm. And they have shallow critiques. And my sure. response is, they grew up evangelical. That's why they have shallow critique. <laughs> it's, right. it's not because they walked away from the evangelical faith. It's because the evangelical faith that formed their identity deconstructed, right? It's not something that they did to it. It's not they read some bad book. It's just it stopped making sense for them for all host of reasons. Yes, yes. And, and to be fair, I mean, listen, on – on the internet, you can find people from all different walks of life saying things that are ridiculous. Okay. And that includes deconstruction. Yeah. I've seen people who are like, I've deconstructed. Here's the new sure. truth. I'm like, okay, we're back to fundamentalism again. I totally understand that. And Dan McClellan does a great job of kind of keeping everyone in, in check, you know, for the record. But I want to play this section from Tim. And then I want to highlight something very important. Here's what he says. She said the primary belief of Christianity is uh, child sacrifice. That's the central belief. And I'm thinking, first of all, this is easy to respond to. But second of all, do you think, do you, this is someone who says they were a Christian and yet they think that 
our central belief is in, in child sacrifice. My seven-year-old can respond to that challenge. My seven-year-old knows that Jesus was a full-grown man when he gave his life on a cross and he willingly gave that life. Okay, I, I just wanna I wanna point out this was very this is this was a very frustrating segment for me because Tim dismisses this claim about child sacrifice. And his response is that his seven-year-old can figure it out because Jesus was a full-grown human uh, and willingly went to the cross. Now, I want to play this clip from, uh, if, <laughs> this is a deep cut. If, if you know who Paul Washer is, I think this sums up. And uh, by the way, I did a poll, Pete. I polled my threads, my Instagram, and my Twitter. I did a very unofficial scientific poll. And I, I asked them, hey, how many of you were taught this growing up? Here's the clip. If God would have kept his son there in heaven throughout all of eternity and allowed us all to die, he would still be a good God because if we had died, it would have been exactly what we deserved. It was exactly what we deserved. But the fact is, the Bible says that God loved the world so much. He loved people so much that he sent his only son to die the death that you should die. Okay, so I want to highlight something here. Um, I was taught, many people that I polled, in fact, like 80% of them were taught something very similar to this, that, that God sent his son, his son to die for me. In fact, when I was uh, in my mid-20s, a pastor who I, I still know today uh, told me, hey, when you have kids, the, lo the, the love of God becomes so much greater because the thought of you sacrificing your own son for humanity is unfathomable. And the fact that God did that for us shows his great love for us. So this idea, you know, you can maybe put crudely of child sacrifice is certainly woven in to at least the theology I was given of what it means to be a true Christian. I mean, John 3, 16, for God, you know, so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world. Mm -hmm. The idea that God sent Jesus to die in place of my, of my you know, um, position where I deserve the wrath of God. Jesus took it. So it, it did kind of bug me to hear them dismiss something that to me, I'm like, uh, uh, this is for me, 101. This is 101 evangelical mm. theology about God sending his child, his son to die mm. for me. I mean, there's a rhetoric of child sacrifice in culture today, you know, and, and it's usually yeah. not a good thing. And in the Bible, it's not a good thing either. It's, it's universally condemned, but you do have the theological problem of God Offering his son to die on behalf of humanity. Yeah. This this is it doesn't matter whether he's grown up or not. This is the son of God who is sacrificed. And it's it is a theological topic of discussion, and it should be. Like, what is what is happening here? You know, you have you have different frameworks for it. You know, it's like um God is mad. And he needs his pound of flesh, and Jesus says, "Oh, take me instead." Like they're on different pages, and I think that's that's pretty nonsensical theologically and biblically. But still, you have it. You have it. I mean, for Paul, it was a sacrifice. For sacrificial language, Paul takes it from Leviticus. It's in Romans three. It's the second half yeah. of the chapter. He uses that language to describe Jesus's death. I think it's per it's not at all outlandish. Tim can maybe tell his seven year old daughter this. It's not at all outlandish to look at this and say, this is a form of child sacrifice, right? Now, it's it's not us sacrificing our child for God. It's right. God sacrificing God's child for us. Yeah. But it still raises the question, how how does this work? And what in heaven's name is happening here? And it's, it's, it's a valid question. Yeah, no, I totally agree. 
Hi, I'm Diana from Albany, New York, and I'm a TNE donor. I donate because it's helped me immensely as I process things like the evangelical support of Trump and its response to COVID and the treatment of LGBTQ people. Keep up the great work. I do want to hit some points of agreement here. This was this was something I, I saw them say, and I went, you know what? I agree. We've seen the rise of the seeker-sensitive movement. There's a lot of people who think they're Christians who aren't really Christians. Even think about the way Not a lot part. of churches do their VBSs and things like this. They're just, they come make a decision. The kid's five years old. They may not even, maybe they do. I've seen the conviction of the Holy Spirit come on a five-year-old. I'm, I'm not saying that can't happen. But so often it's like this kid signed a card at VBS or something and they think they're a Christian, but really what has happened is they've grown up around it. They might even like the culture. They might even believe certain things about Christianity, but they've never trusted in Jesus. And that's the so I, I need to highlight something here that's very important. First off, note how in our other clip, um, Sean, and also Tim says this later on, he actually, he says that, you know, where, where's the moment for these people who have deconstructed of them making that decision of like beating their breasts and saying, God, I'm a sinner, forgive me. And now here, Elisa's kind of actually casting doubt on that, right? Like, okay, they made this statement, mm -hmm. they signed this card. And I saw, according to her, five-year-olds have done it, but also she's seen some five-year-olds that have gotten really saved, but other ones might not have. So it's actually quite mm -hmm. ambiguous, even by their own terms here. Um, and then she goes on to mention this idea of like, and I'll, I'll keep playing the clip, of just how, how the seeker-sensitive movement kind of gives this watered-down gospel. The difference is the Bible says the demons believe and shudder. Demons have correct theology. They believe the correct things about Jesus. But they don't, they can't trust in Jesus for their salvation. Sorry, I'm going to stop right here for a second, just to wrap up Elisa's point. Um, Elisa makes the point that it's about trusting Jesus, right? And again, mm -hmm. I, I, I just don't know, like, what person who grew up evangelical who deconstructed did not do that. I, I, I can get, I, right. I have journals of me trusting Jesus to get to heaven, and so it just, it kind of flies in the face of this idea of like. Well, they were probably never Christians to begin with, because even by Elisa's own standard, I, I would say to Elisa that I've absolutely made commitments that were incredibly mm. sincere with my whole being, that I believe and trust the work right. of Jesus on the cross to forgive me of my sins because I am not enough to make it to eternity with God, and only the sacrifice of Jesus is. But somehow that's dismissed you know, a couple minutes ago. Because we ended up changing how we think about very complicated terms like salvation, what it means to be saved, what are, what are we being saved from, or maybe better put, saved to. Once we start asking those questions, suddenly we've lost the whole plot. Very frustrating right. to deal with. Well, I, I think, too, that, you know, presenting it as trusting in Jesus, I mean, I, I have no issue with that at all. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that what happens again in evangelical culture is that that gets overlaid with a thousand other things that you have to believe in. Yeah. And that, that can be a problem for people that can be a serious source of deconstruction that it's like, yeah, I have to, I have to not think that gay people have a place in God's heart. Yeah. But the Bible says, okay, the Bible says a lot of things. I'm not sure what to pick and what to choose. You're actually right. asking me to pick and choose at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, it's part of the culture itself. I mean, um, I'm going to say it's part of the culture itself that the three individuals represented here, they represent that culture, which causes that problem. Totally. A thousand percent. Let's, let's finish up this clip here. 
Paul Truman, he wrote a book called this, The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. He says that it's not that there's just no evangelical mind. He says there's no evangelical. We mm. can't even get our beliefs together. So the first, one of the first things you hit, hit on there is the theology. We don't even have the theology straight, I don't think. So we got to do a better job with just biblical literacy and theology. But then there's all these other things. And sadly, the church is guilty when it comes to lots of different, lots of different sins, marrying politics with, with Christianity. <laughs> In my head, I'm like, guys, where have you been? Like, where have you been the past, I don't know, 10 years when we know statistically 80% of white evangelicals are totally still to this day in the camp of Donald Trump. Like, yes, I mean, to a degree, I I've shifted my view on, 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 on the, I would argue, the myth of separating the gospel from politics. It it's a political thing by nature. But like, my goodness, like, if you think that, that we've married the gospel to politics, I, I have a lot of literature to give you. And a lot of your friends who you insist are doing great kingdom work have made a very successful career out of marrying not just politics, but very far right politics that are that go down some pretty dark paths um, with mm -hmm. this 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 fundamentalist evangelicalism, and they're mum on that stuff. They are silent. In some cases, they promote those people on their show. Uh, they have people like John Cooper on their podcast. They they work with people like Frank Turek, who are deeply embedded in these spaces, saying things are incredibly harmful. So I, I really do agree here, though, with Tim. That evangelicalism, and there, there's a good debate to make uh, for, you know, Christian Dumez uh, makes this case and so on, that, that, that the term is incredibly slippery and that the theology is just kind of all yeah. over the place. And that's, that's legit. But in my mind, that only demonstrates how complicated and how nuanced and how, dare I use the word, subjective, right. the study of theology mm -hmm. actually is, right? If we're all reading the same book and there's objective truth in it, you would think we would all see the same clear objective truth. Instead, we have a mm -hmm. variety, a mosaic of people who see very core issues very differently. Right. And, and I guess, you know, what Tim was really strongly implying that the problem is that we're all over the place. We have to get back to biblical literacy and theology. Right. And I mean, some of those people are highly biblically literate and theologically literate. They just seem in a different way. But yeah. the, the point is that, like, let's, okay, all this mess that's happened because of deconstructionism, because of the internet, we have to get back to the core of it. We have to get back to what we believe is evangelicals. And my feeling is that that horse has left the barn. Yeah, You're not yeah. going to be able to package this back in again. Evangelicalism is a very diverse movement, and some are very progressive and evangelical, and others are really fundamentalists and not evangelical at all, but all that gets the same label. So it's, a, yes. it, it is a bit of, a um, you have real abuse that happens. Now okay. we want to be careful. We all right. Hopefully you guys can hear me. All right. Even though my camera is not on, but I, I want to point this out. This is a very important piece of, and I was happy that, that they called this out. Do this in the book. We talk about how, man, a lot of stuff. I mean, if you believe, uh, in kind of the, the traditional view of marriage and gender, that's toxic. Okay. And that's called spiritual abuse. I was listening that's to a right. deconstructionist last yep. week, go on Instagram in his story. And he's talking about how this is spiritual abuse. Now I want to be careful here because I don't, that's, I don't think that's abuse. And we can go into that in a little bit, there, yeah. but there is real, there is real abuse and the church needs <clears throat> to take responsibility for that. We have pastors who are abusing people in their congregation 
and then they're being replatformed without any kind of sign of repentance. You know, this is stuff that's happening. There's churches that are hiding things that shouldn't be hidden. These things should be brought to light and justice should be done. I wanted to say, I know you all can't see me. I completely agree a thousand percent. Unfortunately, for the world that Alisa and Sean and Tim operate in, it is full of people that are still platformed in these spaces. Brian Houston from Hillsong is starting a new church. Mark Driscoll is only gaining popularity. We just have discovered more uh, stuff within the SBC. Uh, one, one of their main architects of the conservative resurgence turns out was hiding abuse for decades and people knew about it. So yes, I mean, mm -hmm. on this part, a, a thousand percent. And I don't understand why, why, why these folks can't understand why so many of us would leave these spaces when we see the rampant abuse that goes largely unchecked. And frankly, and I, they would probably say yeah. this isn't really our line of, of work. I get that. But they're, they're so critical of the progressive and of the deconstructionists, but they're so silent on what happens inside their own house. Like they are silent. I, to this, I'm not aware of any yeah. Elisa conversation. Maybe she's had one or two talking about some of the major abuse scandals. John MacArthur had three articles come out, Pete, three that he covered up the, um, I'm, I'm trying to get around the YouTube censors, the SA of children done at the hands of his own pastors. Okay. John MacArthur mm -hmm. is still platformed. John MacArthur still has a publishing deal. He still seems a faithful gospel preacher. And as far as I know, not a peep from these three publicly calling for his resignation. Instead, we're responding to their book that they just wrote about deconstruction and why, in Elisa's words, it's the most dangerous thing about progressive. Uh, uh, it's the most biggest. It's one of the biggest threats to you know the mm -hmm. the the Christian tradition. It just it drives me crazy. I want to keep going with this clip, and I'll I'll get your thoughts on it. So, so I think part of the problem is there's lots of there's there's a criticism of the church that I think is valid. We need to do a whole lot better. Now I get it. The church. As, as long as there's a church, there's going to be church hurt because we are sinners and we, um, and, and, and sometimes sinners hurt other sinners. You know, that's how, that's how it goes. But again, we're not sweeping under the rug. We want to deal with it head on. I, I, I really would dispute this with Tim. If I was talking to him, I would ask him what videos has he done? You know, what has he done behind the scenes to combat this stuff? And again, he has no problem appealing to how people aren't perfect when it comes to matters of abuse or whatever we're talking about here. But when it comes to theology, <laughs> we have to have the right theology, Peter, or else we're really in danger here of, of not being inside the historic Christian tradition. I think this kind of highlights right. how belief is really uh, the key element here instead of maybe right action or right living. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 All right. Almost done. It's a very um, intellectualized. And, uh, I agree. And so that's, I think um, that's something that I think is a valid criticism. Again, we're writing our book and we're acknowledging some of those things, but yeah, we're also do. saying there's lots of stuff in there that isn't um, a valid criticism. Mm -hmm. And especially when it comes to Orthodox theology, this stuff is true. It's not toxic. It's true. I don't know if Elisa wants to. to so there you go. I mean, it's not toxic. It's true. It's down to Orthodox theology being right. We've mm -hmm. covered that pretty extensively in, in this episode so far. Um, but yeah, I mean that, that part, I was like, yes, yes, yes. But then the caveat, I, maybe I'm jaded Pete, because I cover so much of this stuff. I hear from our audience, mm -hmm. so many people who follow us and who engage in our yeah. community are people who have experienced legitimate. I mean, some of the stories would just yeah. make you, you know, oh, yeah. I know. break down. Yeah. 
Um, and and yeah. it just is very frustrating to watch people who like to position themselves as really the gatekeepers of historic Christianity and Orthodox theology be you know really treat abuse with like a feather. Like okay, we'll acknowledge it, we'll touch it on the nose and say we we see it, but then really do nothing practically to really clean out some of those spaces that are just so incredibly problematic. And then, you know, here we are where we're talking about deconstruction because their book that they're talking about in this context is all about why deconstruction Mm -hmm. is the biggest threat and why parents need to be armed to save their children from, I guess, the depths of hell that deconstruction leads you down. Well, I think a lot of people say, and I, I think there's truth to this, that, you know, the Christian faith is about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Right, yeah. what you think and what you, and what you and how you live. I do. I I share your concern that I I think sometimes the orthopraxy side of it gets very short shrift because the main thing is the world of ideas. Right. That's the main thing that's important, and you have to have the right ideas, the right thoughts. Because if you don't, the rest of it just falls apart. But the problem is there are plenty of people who, if you quiz them, would have orthodox theology. And it's not that they don't trust Jesus to get saved. It's just that they've lost their way and they don't act like it, right? And th- yes. this is a common thing, right? So, um, but but a little bit more of a nod to the orthopraxy problem would be very very helpful because that's that's what really affects people's lives. You know, people yeah. who have been abused in church, not just emotionally, right, but physically abused in church, they need to know that people like them hear them. People in their camp hear them and are supporting them and not just saying, oh, we don't ignore that stuff. But then you focus on all these other things that you think is the real root of the problem. Right. When, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe this is not the worst thing to ever happen for people to rethink what they believe and why. Yeah. Hey, everyone, thanks for hanging on. Thanks for being here for uh, we're going on, going on almost two hours now. It's been a really great talk. Pete, you've been a phenomenal guest. Thank you for I know you spent a lot of time behind the scenes prepping for this, and it's been really great. So this was another point that I actually uh, agreed with Sean on. I thought was a very good point to bring out regarding one of our favorite electric guitarists, friends. If you know who this is, you'll know who I'm talking about. Here we go. So I want to probe what you think about this, because I know John Cooper from Skillet says, uh, it's time for us and your generation to declare war on this idolatrous deconstruction Christian movement. And that just blew up Twitter and social media and everybody got upset. And and I have, I don't know if I'd say torn thoughts on this. On one hand, I'm like, I get it. There is a movement trying to dismantle Christianity and talk people out of following Jesus. We've got to put a stop to this. And you guys in your book are standing up to this same time out. On the other hand, when I get off social media, just this week, I had two conversations one person called me up and said, Sean, I'm deconstructing my faith. I said, what do you mean? They said, I'm just rethinking things, but still faithful to scripture, still faithful to Jesus. I said, okay. The other person literally last night said, my daughter came to me, didn't use the term deconstruction, but said, my daughter said to me, I'm no longer a Christian. When I talk with people face to face, the warfare language is not helpful. <laughs> These are people that are hurting and they're crying and they're broken. And in fact, a lot of people who have deconstructed and deconverted, it's a painful process for them. Many uh, have I, I think he's totally right here in, in many ways. The question, of course, mm-hmm. I would ask Sean regarding his comment that, that this is some, a movement uh, trying to destroy Christianity is like, 
really like all of Christianity is, is that what deconstruction really is? Like it's that, that's not at all what's going on here. And also, I would also ask them like, well, do you think Turning Point USA, who your friend Frank Turek speaks at, are they trying to destroy Christianity? Because I'll tell you what they're doing with it is incredibly problematic, but I digress. One of the points that I really appreciated with this, with Sean was that, and this is kind of Sean's ethos from what I've seen online is he does tend to be very empathetic. And he's willing to acknowledge the the stories and the human experience and the fact that um, this is painful uh, for people. And he's absolutely right. Deconstruction, like you said earlier, is something that happens to us. I didn't really go looking for it. For many people, it's anxiety-inducing. They lose community. Their church oftentimes will push them out. So, uh, yeah, 100%. And to his point about John Cooper— uh, yes. I mean, John Cooper is someone who publicly is very loud about this. He's someone who actually wrote a book recently that I happen to have called Wimpy, Weak, and Woke. This is the direction that that John's heading in. Uh, and, and the clip that Sean's referring to is one where John Cooper is in, is in a stadium full of people saying, we declare war on this idolatrous movement of deconstruction. Now, this is also the same, John. And Pete, I know that I'm kind of going more into the world that, that you try to avoid. So you don't have to add commentary to any of this, but you know, this same John Cooper is someone who has no problem going on Candace Owens' show, a woman who makes her living uh, dehumanizing people, calling people who are trans demons, saying that, 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 that she finds trans folks uh, abhorrent. For John, his theology makes him draw a hard line at people who land into different beliefs, to your point, just ideas about whatever Christian thing we're talking about, right? Or different maybe view of, of a political perspective, um, that is is a line too far. But when it comes to, yeah. to being on the show of someone who is blatantly dehumanizing people and espouses at some point uh, pretty um, <clears throat> anti-Semitic views about things, uh, that right. for John is no big deal. And that is a very interesting space to watch kind of unfold. Yeah. Well, I, I would, uh, my opinion is that I, I think what we're seeing is very typical, and that is the most important thing to fight over is biblical inerrancy. Yeah. Which is, which is equated with biblical authority. And so you're going to be able to tolerate all sorts of things from other people and what they say about human beings and things like that. But if you're going to mess with the Bible, you know, the Bible says this about Jesus. It says this is about the resurrection. It says this is about the atonement. If you if you're gonna come to if you're gonna look at that stuff and say, I'm not really sure about it anymore, that is more of a threat to this iteration of Christianity. That is much more of a threat than dehumanizing other people. Exactly. Exactly. So here's their response. So Sean gives this thing, hey guys, I'm concerned about this. And then here's the response, and then we're gonna end end the discussion. Again, Pete, great having you. Here we go. John is a good friend of mine. And I know that John is one of the most tenderhearted people in the world. And mm. if somebody called him and said, John, I'm deconstructing my faith, John would respond with so much compassion. He would mm. sit with that person. He would love on that person. He would try to get to the bottom of what's going on and see. I'm sorry. It's just so hard to believe this. Like John, you can, any anyone who's watching this, go to John's, uh, johncooper.com, find his podcast, listen to him talk. The guy sounds incredibly not just I disagree and I'm concerned, but just hostile. And again, look at the title of his book, Wimpy, Weak, and Woke, How Truth Can Save America from Utopian Destruction. And yes, he talks about deconstruction here. So, you know, with all due respect to Elisa, who's also very kind, and I love, I think Elisa is someone who, for the average evangelical fundamentalist, is, is a great 
model of like how to engage without dehumanizing people and being civil because she really is very, very gracious, even when she strongly disagrees. Um, but to me, it's just so hard to believe like her words that John is this teddy bear when his whole stick publicly is about being, you know, uh, a warrior for Christ and, and destroying the the deconstructionist. To understand yeah, and get it, the same. Oh, God, sorry. Now, it doesn't matter what he is privately. Right. Disrespect. It doesn't matter. Right. It literally is irrelevant to this. Right. He, he could be a nice. I hear this rhetoric a lot. Like. Yeah, he, but he's a really nice guy when you get to know him. Yeah, but he has a public platform and he's doing certain very damaging things to people. That that's the that is the problem. I agree. John would get up on that stage and say it's time to declare war on this movement. And so I think what it is is we have to understand the what and there's a warfare in the what, understanding what it is, what it's doing to people. I mean, this movement and listen, I'm not talking about an individual person in the movement. I'm talking about the doctrines of demons that are underneath <laughs> I mean, we're friends. We know that there are doctrines, oh. demons that are trying to lead people away and the enemy will take advantage of people. And, and, and so we want to go to war with the ideas. And we, okay. So maybe Pete, have, have your thoughts here, but that's a pretty strong statement, right? Calling this deconstruction thing, the, the doctrine of demons and that this is leading people astray from what I can only assume is a path that leads someone to burn in hell forever. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just shocking. I just find it very interesting for Elisa to make such a strong statement that deconstruction is the doctrine of demons. I also want to point out one other thing. Elisa speaks pretty intensely against the new apostolic movement, which or reformation is a pretty Pentecostal charismatic way of thinking about things. But, but that doctrine of demons line, I'm not sure if she's aware of that. It's pretty tied into that Pentecostal way of seeing the world. So when I first heard her mention it, I thought to myself, this is very interesting because she's someone who rails against Pentecostal theology. And yet, you know, here we are. So, all right, let's finish up this last piece here and then we'll kind of wrap it up. Would love your thoughts as we're going through. And thank you for your patience. John Cooper is a good friend of mine. All right. So we're at the John Cooper Doctrine of Demons we, part. We have labeled leading the movement. Okay. These are the wolves. They are not hurt sheep. They're not doubting sheep. They're not questioning sheep. These are wolves. Okay. So what Tim is talking about here is he's talking about the so-called leaders of the deconstruction movement. To be very clear, as I've said many times, deconstruction is an explosion. There is no movement. There's no organized set of doctrines or beliefs. We don't have any annual meetings. There are people who have large Instagram followings and other social media platforms for sure. So certainly there are leaders, but I will tell you, if you listen to their stories, most of them at some point were greatly hurt by the evangelical church. So to, to frame it in a wolves situation, right? The idea of like, these are just predators. No, Mark Driscoll is a wolf. John MacArthur is a wolf. These are people who are massively successful in the evangelical world and they prey on their parishioners. It's been well-documented. So I would just tell Tim, please look within instead of looking outside because you're missing it. There's a way you respond to wolves. Again, this the war metaphor isn't something Booper came up with. It's not something Childers or Barnett came up with. This is Paul's language, right? The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we are... We are standing strong and firm, ready for battle against those wolves because we know those wolves are trying to lead the sheep away. And So this is a very 
again, we documented this, this whole live with Pete. This is just the typical evangelical gatekeeping of we have the absolute truth that is then that is found in the authority of the Bible, which of course we dictate which parts are and are not authoritative. Uh, and then anyone who deviates outside of that is deviating outside of historic Christianity. Now, Pete was with us for the past hour and a half. It's been debunked a thousand ways. Um, but I, I really find, find myself more and more just kind of frustrated, friends, to be honest with you, with the whole apologist world, because they, in my mind, are so focused on what is a pretty minimal movement and or sorry, explosion in terms of deconstruction or the progressive Christian movement. Uh, while letting some pretty deep-seated, violent political rhetoric go unchecked in their midst. And I think that's an important thing to highlight here. There's not much talked about in this world of the threat of Christian nationalism or the people that they are intersecting with or the Charlie Kirks of the world who are doing a lot of damage in the name of God. It's just more about, again, the other, right? Who is out there? Who do we have to protect the flock from? When in reality, many of us who at one point were in that flock realized painfully so that the danger was actually inside, not outside. So I appreciate all of you being here. Um, uh, VT, to your point here, this is a response video, meaning the whole premise was actually getting through clips to respond to. Usually for podcast interviews with people like Pete, that's more conversation driven. But this particular format is designed to get through different clips from a podcast and have my guests and I respond to them. So friends, I appreciate all of you being here. I would love your feedback on this live. If you want more of that, let me know in the comments. Please make sure to subscribe to the channel. You can follow us on Instagram, on TikTok, on podcasts. We have, we have a private Facebook community. And I'm just really grateful that I get, to, I get to do this work and have all of you in the chat hanging out with me. A sincere thank you to Dr. Pete Enns. He brought so much wisdom, so many things to think about as we navigate our faith. Friends, I promise you, there are better ways forward in the Christian tradition once you leave the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. There's no shade to my evangelical fundamentalist friends. There are great people who, who live in that world. For me, the problem is once they start dictating who is in and who is out, via a very narrow and fundamentalist theology. So I'm happy to have all of you here. Thanks for your time. I will talk to you all later on.